13 through 42 this morning. Jesus gives us a picture of Christianity this morning that is a little bit uncomfortable. And as we walk through this picture of uncomfortable Christianity, we'll see that following Jesus is costly, but the reward is worth it. Following Jesus is costly, but the reward is worth it. I'll begin reading in Matthew 10, verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? We'll stop there for now. So the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States uh, reads like this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And it's largely because of that, in part, that we, we sit here this morning able to worship freely. And I thank God for freedom of religion and that we live in a country where we can practice uh, what we do freely and openly. Yet it's possible to experience something good and it change our basic expectations for what it means to be a Christian. There are many believers in the world today who don't enjoy what we are enjoying right now, or at least the opportunity to worship without fear. Many believers suffer persecution for their faith. According to Open Doors USA, every month, 255 Christians are killed for being Christians. 66 churches are attacked, and 160 Christians are detained without trial. In fact, if you were to uh, travel throughout the world today, one out of every 12 Christians that you meet uh, worships in a regime under persecution. So what we're looking at today for us may seem like a distant experience, but for many Christians in the world today, and for many throughout history, it's very much the ordinary part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, Jesus' teaching tells us that it should be the ordinary expectation of Christians that will experience conflict and persecution for following Jesus. In fact, he tells us that it's a dangerous mission. In verse 16, he says that we should expect to experience what it means to be sheep in the middle of wolves. Now, sheep, if you know about sheep, they belong with a pack of sheep, herd of sheep, and not with a pack of wolves. In fact, any sheep that's in the middle of a pack of wolves is expecting to be lunch. He doesn't plan to enjoy a long and prosperous life. If you think about the number of times that Jesus compares his disciples or people to sheep in this section, it's pretty remarkable. So if you remember at the end of Matthew 9, he looked out and he saw people, and he saw them what? As sheep without a shepherd. And then when he sends his disciples out, he sends them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And now he tells his own disciples that they're also sheep surrounded by wolves. 
So Jesus doesn't picture Christians as a powerful lobbying group, but as people who are in danger from the powers around them. What do sheep do when they're surrounded by wolves? They run. But Jesus also says we shouldn't act like sheep. He uses a couple of other animals to, to tell us what we should act like. Verse 16, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The word for wise here means cunning or sensible. It's, it's the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Genesis 3, when, when the serpent appears before Eve, and, and Moses writes that he was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field. That word crafty is the same word. It, it means that you're pretty shrewd, so you're, you're good at figuring out situations. And, and so he says we ought to be cunning. But he says his cunning should go hand in hand with the innocence of doves. Innocence literally means unmixed or pure. In other words, we ought to be transparent and, and clear. So we're to be cunning and yet purely honest. Uh, one writer said it this way, if we are to be sheep among wolves, then we should at least be smart sheep. The bottom line is that we should be both pure and shrewd. It's easy because there are parts of the Christian message that are attractive to overestimate the attractiveness of the Christian message to the world. People love to hear that God loves them, but no one likes to hear that they're not basically good. People love to hear that there's a reward for following Jesus, but no one likes to hear that Jesus is in charge, not us. So there's this combination of the sweet innocence of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus along with this shrewd discretion and discernment in the way we relate to people around us. It's sort of like this. Uh, when you rear your children, it's a good thing to teach them to be polite and obedient. I mean, down south, we teach them to say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. That's, that's a good thing to teach kids to be sweet and innocent. But at the same time, it's really good also to teach them not to get into the car with strangers. We, both of those things are good, and, and it's a little bit what Jesus is doing here. He's saying there, there's a certain way that we ought to relate that's sweet and innocent, and yet at the same time, don't be gullible, don't be stupid about the way, way you relate to the world around you, because... The world is filled with persecution. In verse 17, Jesus says this comes from the government. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. But he also says that persecution can come in conflict with those you love. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all. For my name's sake. I mean, this is remarkable. A father persecuting his own child? Seems almost unimaginable, doesn't it? In 2016, so it's three years ago, this past January and February, I took a, a trip to Azerbaijan. Now, if you don't know anything about Azerbaijan, it's uh, near Iran. It's 95% Muslim. It's, it's illegal to worship, to spread the Christian gospel there. I went there to train pastors, and while I was there, I met some remarkable men. The first was a man named Samir. Samir's father was a rather influential imam, a Muslim imam, and Samir had been cast out by his family, persecuted for his faith, and you wonder, what would be worth, what would make it worth, in Samir's mind, giving all of that up? And largely for him, it was the love of a Christian man named Hafiz, and Hafiz also was a Christian persecuted for his faith. He'd been imprisoned for preaching the gospel, told never to preach again, beaten. 
These men had experienced things that I've only imagined ever experiencing, and yet they experienced as a normal part of the course of life and experienced the rejection of those they loved and of their families themselves, told never to preach the name of Jesus again, and yet they both faithfully preach the gospel. Now, we might sit here this morning and, and wonder how we would respond in this moment But it's the bold love of Jesus that they've received and also their love for the Lord that gives them strength in the face of great persecution. And Jesus wonders or tells us when we wonder what it might be to experience this, that God promises remarkable grace to experience this kind of pressure. People like Samir and Hafiz get a special grace that perhaps we don't experience. Verse 19, when they deliver you over... Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. In that moment, Jesus says, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks through you. And honestly, when we hear stories like this, or we hear of places like this, or Jesus' words, there's a part of it that, I mean, if you're just not sadistic, and you're just naturally human, you're not masochistic, that is scary, isn't it? It's a little bit scary to think about encountering Christianity in a context that's openly hostile, and yet Jesus gives us comfort. Because i got to admit, when I know what to say, when I wilt under pressure, but Jesus promises that in that moment, his spirit will speak through us. There are stories like this throughout church history. And 500 years ago, two men were tied to stakes in England, where kind of feels like a distant memory now, but Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were tied to stakes where each could see the other, and as, as one died, Latimer said to his friend Ridley, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out, and because of their death, religion can be practiced freely in England today. God's spirit speaks through God's children in moments of trial like this. And with the promise of difficult times like this, Jesus' next words are surprising. Let's begin reading in verse 26. Jesus says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Verse 26, have no fear of them. All right, Jesus, let's, let's get this straight. You're telling us that we'll be persecuted, we'll be cast in prison, that even those we love most may, may come after us for our faith, and yet you say, have no fear. What? This, this makes no sense. And Jesus says this largely stems because of our fear of God. Jesus says we don't need to fear humans because there's someone far bigger that we should fear. Verse 28, don't fear those who can kill the body, But not the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, the worst thing that can happen to us is not that we die. The worst thing that can happen is that we die without knowing Jesus. To die in Christ, that's to gain eternal life. But to die without Christ is to enter eternal judgment 
we tend to fear what we can see and feel. Yet Jesus tells us that the thing that we should fear is dying in our sin and receiving destruction of both soul and body in hell. So Jesus says, fear God, not not these people. These people can harm you in a temporary way. God has the ability to judge you eternally, but he also gives us a beautiful picture of the love of God, verse 29. are not two sparrows sold for a penny. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, science tells us that we are all born into this world with somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 hair follicles. Now, I'm looking around this morning, and some of you believe that's never been true for you. But I promise, at some point, you were born, and we all have approximately the same number of hair follicles. Blondes get a little bit of a head start. They have about 150,000 follicles on their heads. Redheads, they're on the lower end, 90,000. And brunettes, somewhere to a, they're kind of in the middle. They're kind of the centrist with 100 to 110,000 follicles. Now, some of us have a, a head start on counting down that number. We've made it, made it a little bit easier for God to number the hairs on our heads. If you've got closer to 1,000, perhaps you feel like uh, it's no big deal that God knows the number of hairs on your head. But God knows if you're sitting here this morning, you have zero hairs on your head, 1,000 or 100 or 150,000 hairs on your head. In fact, in the world today, there are approximately 700 trillion, 530 billion hairs on heads in the world today, and God knows the numbers of every single one of them. Now, sparrows, you can see them flying around, but they're not something that we commonly eat. In fact, in our world today, chickens are the sparrows of our world. You can get chickens for a song. And sparrows are a fairly common source of food in the first century. Even poor people could, could purchase this kind of meat. With, with just a penny, you could purchase uh, two different sparrows. Go down to the market. They're way down on the food chain. In fact, you could kind of say they're, they're the kosher hot dog of the first century. Yet Jesus says that God's providential care extends even to these cheap birds. Not one, verse 29 says, will fall to the ground apart from your father. The things that matter nothing to us matter a great deal to our Heavenly Father. And verse 31 tells us, you are of more value than many sparrows. If God cares so much for these lowliest creatures, how much more will he care for those who are made in his own image, who become his children by faith in Christ? You see, to know Jesus isn't just to know Jesus, it is to have the best Father in the universe. Even the best human fathers will ultimately fail. They'll ultimately disappoint their children. Yet our Heavenly Father never fails a single time in caring for His children. If you find yourself looking for love and acceptance, searching for someone who will love you and never disappoint you, someone who will accept you and never cast you out, that place is in Jesus in the care of our Heavenly Father. Ephesians 1.6 tells us that through Christ, He has made us accepted in the Beloved. You might find yourself going to school, and as you go to school, you look around longing to be accepted. And you look around, and what you long for, you never find from the people around you. And at some level, you, you feel like you get it, but then you find those people talking by the locker, and they aren't truly accepting you. Or you're a wife struggling through disappointment in marriage. Marriage being the place where you, you had your hopes for acceptance and love and a place of security, and yet you find yourself disappointed. Or single, and you wish you could be married and disappointed with marriage. Because you don't know that kind of love and acceptance. Yet God's word tells us that Jesus, the bridegroom, is the best place of love. Therefore, Jesus says, do not fear because your father cares for you. 
There's no place that you can go that is beyond the care of your heavenly Father. If the God who knows the number of hairs on your head, the God who knows when a sparrow falls from a tree, that God cares for you. If he cares for that bird, how much more will our Father in heaven care for those in his care? God looks out for you. God loves you. God cares for you. You have the best care, the greatest love, a love that Ephesians 3 tells us is something that God allows us to know, yet is beyond our comprehension. The height and the depth, the length and the breadth to know the love of Christ, that is beyond comprehension. And God says it is ours through Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you can look for acceptance around you, but the only true place of absolute acceptance is in the care of our loving Heavenly Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you find yourself there this morning, you do not need to doubt, you do not need to wonder, you never need to fear insecurity because God loves you, God accepts you, he makes you accepted in the beloved through his son Jesus, and there's nothing you can do to change that. So, if this is true, if all of this is ours in Christ, why is it that we struggle to find our security there? Well, at some level, this is because Jesus takes our definition of success and he flips it on its head. Verses 34 to 39, we'll begin reading verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus says, you're going to be persecuted. Do not fear. And then verse 34, don't think that I have come to bring peace. Well, what is it that the angels sang at Jesus' birth? Peace on earth and goodwill to men. So how is it here that Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace? Jesus is hinting at something that Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes there that Jesus himself is our peace, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, making peace, and reconciling us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, if you think about that, what you hear is a lot of language that's at opposite ends of the spectrum. You hear peace, and you hear hostility. You hear reconciliation, and you hear killing. So what's going on here? Jesus does come to bring peace, but the way to peace is through the cross. The conflict of the cross precedes the crown of peace. Sword is a symbol of conflict. So, is Jesus coming one of peace or one of conflict? What Jesus says is that the truth of the gospel divides. See, we all like to think that we deserve to be king. And one implication of Jesus being the great king means that you can't be king, that I can't be king. There's only one king. Herod didn't like the sound of this, and truthfully, we don't either. Following Jesus means surrendering our old way of life to follow him. Jesus says this two different ways here in verse 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father. But whoever denies me, I also will deny. Then in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are, these are hard words. I know people who read passages like this and struggle in this way. How do I know, how, how, how do I know when you know, I love my family more than I love Jesus? But I don't think that Jesus is speaking to sort of subjective sense of whether a dad loves his kids more than he loves Jesus or whether husbands or wives or fathers or mothers. He's not, he's not really addressing whether we should be loving moms and dads or loving husbands and wives. Clearly we should be. He tells us that. But the context here is one in which family loyalty comes into conflict with our loyalty to Christ. He's not talking about ordinary family relationships, whether you should show love. You see, the most fundamental family relationship in Jewish culture was not husband and wife. It was parent-child. It was father, son, mother, daughter. This test isn't some sort of internal estimate about how much do I really love Jesus versus how much I love my kids. The point is that family loyalty cannot keep us from openly confessing our faith in Christ. Following Jesus can be a lonely business. But at the same time, Jesus says to remember these words. God knows the number of hairs in your head. God cares about the sparrow. How much more will he care for you? God loves us like no one else can love us. And therefore, God deserves to be loved like no one else deserves to be loved. Uh, this week, at a couple meetings in the evening, and one of those nights I was uh, going out of the house to the meeting, and my daughter just handed me this card. And you can see Prodigy, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but she said, Dad, I'm giving you this card because you can't be here tonight, and I don't want you to be lonely, and this can keep you company. And so, really, like, I carried this this week, and honestly, this card didn't keep me company. What kept me company? The memory of that relationship, right? Like, the memory of that relationship is something, like, I would keep it, I'd, honestly, people probably were like, why is he carrying that uh, kid's picture? Like, I would have it there, like, with my Bible or with my, with my notebook in a meeting, because it just, like, made me feel good to have it there and, and know that there was this relationship. But, brothers and sisters, God has, has given us himself through his son, Jesus. And so there are moments that we walk through life, and maybe you've experienced the hostility of a family for following Jesus. Maybe you've experienced abandonment by a friend for following Jesus. And yet, and yet, yet God says, like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to keep you company. There's no place that you can go that's beyond my care. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I've given you my word. My word walks with you every step of the way. I mean, the love of an earthly father is good. But the love of a heavenly father, that's perfectly good. The love of an earthly family, that's a blessing. But the love of an eternal heavenly family is an eternal good. Maybe you know the experience of a broken family, of heartache and pain. Jesus says, you'll never experience that in my family. It's a family you'll never experience rejection in. The love of mom and dad is God's gift to a child, but the love, the perfect love of Jesus our brother and from God our Father is what leads Paul to pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We can know the love of God and yet never, never exhaustively know the love of God. 
You can begin to know God's love for you, yet never exhaust its limits. This brings us back to the cost of following Jesus. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Brothers and sisters, following Jesus isn't something that we can add to a comfortable life. What Jesus says here is it could cost you everything. With Jesus, it's not treat yourself, it's lose yourself. And the irony is that losing yourself for the sake of Christ means what? That you find yourself. The ultimate finding of ourselves is our life in Christ. To follow Jesus, we must be willing to suffer persecution. We must be willing to leave everything willing to be mocked or forsaken by friends. Jesus is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He reigns eternally over all. He requires our utmost devotion, but in exchange, he gives us himself, his very life. He offers the ultimate gift to those who trust him. So we all have to ask ourselves the question, not do I want a good life in heaven, but have I offered myself in total commitment to Jesus? And what Jesus is saying here isn't that this isn't some special category for super-Christians. It's the ordinary part of what it means to have a relationship with Christ. The essence of what it means to be Christian is to be totally committed to Jesus. So if you find yourself here this morning hesitating, not wanting to give up this world to follow Jesus, would you turn from your sin and would you trust him? Because for those who know Jesus, the reward is worth it. Verses 40 to 42. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet's reward because he is a prophet, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Well, the first first and most obvious reward is salvation, verse 22. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The ones who commit to Christ, no matter what the cost is, will not be abandoned by Jesus. Romans 8 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The end of that same chapter tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those who endure in Christ will be saved. But the good news is the reward doesn't stop there. So let's follow the logic of verse 40. To welcome Jesus' disciples is to welcome Jesus himself. And to welcome Jesus is to welcome Jesus' Father. So therefore, to receive God's messengers is to receive God himself. Then Jesus adds these words, to receive a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. A righteous person, you receive a righteous person's reward. In other words, what Jesus is saying is those who support and participate in the ministry of those who are spreading the gospel, those who support that ministry are actually, in God's eyes, doing that same ministry. To to serve a prophet is to receive a prophet's reward. And God looks at them as though they have done the work themselves. But this goes not only for great gifts to great ministers, but also to very tiny gifts to tiny servants. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus isn't talking so much about little kids here. He's talking about insignificant people. To give the smallest gift to the most insignificant person is not something that God overlooks. 
It's what Hebrews 6 promises. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people. Jesus requires total commitment. Sounds impossible. But he rewards even the smallest service. He doesn't even overlook the smallest thing. It might be a faithful lady this morning changing diapers, just a building over. Feels ordinary, painful, and worthless. But God is not unrighteous to overlook your work and your labor of love. It might be a grandfather who shows up early to church each week to unlock the buildings and make sure this place is safe and open for people to worship this morning. Very ordinary, unremarkable thing that even a cup of cold water, Jesus says, will not be overlooked. It might be a grandmother serving her grandchildren and just trying to teach them the best way she knows how to teach them to love Jesus. God will not overlook this. God sees, God knows, God cares, and God will reward his children. Even a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name is not something he will overlook. It is rewarded by the God who has right now everything under control. The God who sees all, knows all, and who Colossians 1 says upholds the universe by the word of his power. He knows the smallest act of service. He sees, he cares, and he rewards. James 1 tells us every good gift comes from our Father above. You see, brothers and sisters, following Jesus is costly, but the reward is worth it in the care of our Heavenly Father. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with him, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, we thank you that there's none of us that is beyond your care. There's also nothing so small, no act, that you overlook it. And so, God, I thank you that you are a God who graciously gives us far beyond what we deserve, who loves us perfectly like no human father ever could. God, you're so good to us, and I pray that your goodness would stir our hearts. God, motivate us to be loving and kind to others, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing...